This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Kautzman and at Brad Kelly. All right, and this is the Art of Darkness podcast with your hosts, Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? Great, man. Yeah. Yeah. How are you? I'm doing real well. I uh, am going to consider tonight's uh, episode a success if we can do two things. One, I want to pronounce uh, our subject's name, his full name, without, without sounding like a complete tool. Uh, and two, I want to get through the night without, uh, wittingly or, or not, uh, committing a pun uh, you want to get on, through it without making a pun. Without making a pun. For example, we would not want to say we're going to have a wild time tonight. For instance, we're not going to do that. Okay. Right? Hey, good. Okay. I'm gonna, I'll try to stick to that one. Right. Definitely. No promises on the pronunciation, though. Yeah. So tonight's episode is about, let me pull it up because I need to see it in front of me to, to pronounce it here. Uh, one moment. The full name is Oscar Fingal of Flaherty Wills Wild. Wild. <laughs> Let me try that again. Oscar Fingal of Flaherty Wills Wild. I that did it. is quite a name. Yes, born on the 16th of October, 1854, and died uh, rather ignominiously at age 46 from men uh, meningitis on the 30th of December in Paris uh, in the year 1900. Uh, so tonight is going to be about the great poet, playwright, influencer, lifestyle influencer. For, Oscar O'Flaherty. <laughs> Oscar Wilde, correct. Uh, oh, yes, okay. Yeah, right, right, Oscar Wilde, yes. Uh, um, excellent, excellent. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, before we dig into it, this is, uh, of course, the Art of Darkness podcast. You can find us at uh, artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter now at artofdarkpod. And I mm. want to say that we are completely unqualified to do this, this podcast. We are not professional historians. I have a degree in history for what that's worth. Uh, Brad and I both have master's degrees in creative writing. We're mm -hmm. artists, and so we're coming at it from that angle. Is that fair to say, Brad? I think that's fair. I, you know, I have a bachelor's, uh, a bachelor's in English, so okay. I'm an English bachelor, uh, and you know, both uh, pretty well-read people. So we're we're uh, as qualified as anybody in America in 2021 to do anything. Right. Seems like yeah, nobody. Yeah, right. <laughs> we, so uh, in this time of, of, of failing trust in experts, we are also experts. So um, take <laughs> right. that, take that yeah. as you will. I think what I'm saying is you can feel free to yell at us if we get something wrong on Twitter. Sure. Certainly. Yeah. And look us up. You know where to find us. We could use the engagement. So go for it. Absolutely. Wow. I, I, we welcome your venom, whatever, whatever you're feeling. Um, and I think to quote Oscar, he said something to the effect of, uh, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. 
yes. so okay. this is this this is a, an incredible writer and a and a person uh, in whose wake we really dwell. I, I think it would be fair to say that that this is a Wildian age in the mm. sense that he and we'll get we'll get to all of this in time, um, but he he really uh, put the individual first. Uh, in a way that the Victorian society at the time certainly did not. Uh, so let's let's dig in and uh, drive through some of his life. So um, he was born uh, in Dublin uh, in October of 1854. He's an Irish poet and playwright. Um, uh, his life was to make him one of the most popular playwrights in London, but it took quite a while to get there. Um, his parents were Anglo-Irish and they were intellectuals. So here's a, here's a case um, of, of someone coming from a family where this is maybe not completely out of left field. Uh, he isn't um, an autodidact. He's not self-taught by any means. Um, he, uh, let, me, let me actually get to, there's a good website that I found that kind of takes you through the, the you know, point by point in his life. So he was born, his father um, was an, I think an ophthalmologist. He's like an eye, eye and ear doctor, a doctor okay. of some sort and very well to do. I believe uh, in one of the pieces that I, I, I read or I looked at uh, claimed that his father uh, set up his own library. Uh, or something to that to that effect. I mean, we're talking or, or hospital. I think it might have been. Wow. Yeah. Yes. So, right. He was the he was the forerunner of the Dublin Eye and Ear Hospital. Mm. Um, yeah. And in those days, medicine was a little different, right? So being a doctor, uh, it wasn't long before that where you could just declare that you were a doctor. I think. So. <laughs> right. You had a knife, a knife, and a good bedside manner. Yeah. You were taller than everyone else. Yeah. I'm, right. uh, I'm the doctor. I'm the doctor. Everybody kind of just went along with it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so just like a podcast, I'm a podcaster. Right. Uh, <laughs> William. Yeah. Here it is. William Wilde was Ireland's, uh, and I'm simply reading from the wiki here. Uh, Ireland's leading auto ophthalmological surgeon and he was knighted in 1864 for his services uh you know in ireland he wrote books on the subject um uh, or rather on on the subjects of uh, archaeology and peasant folklore and this this milieu that that his parents sort of set up for him his mother would run salons and things he was around the the literati and the intellectual set um, you know, uh, of, uh, of Dublin um, at the time. So he was sort of steeped in all of this from a, from a pretty young age. The, the idea of society, he was, mm -hmm. he was certainly a society person. Although being Irish, uh, you know, as we'll discover a little later on when he was to come to London, there were, there were all sorts of implications, um, you know, to Absolutely. that, um, yeah. without a doubt. Um, uh, his father was a bit of a, um, a rake, uh, if I'm not mistaken, his father had two children out of wedlock. Uh, and so this, this rebellious kind of, um, oh, I don't, I don't want to say the word, this wild streak sort of, you know, <laughs> God, you know what, it's, it's going to happen. It's, it's inevitable. Um, sort of you know, ran in the family. Um, he was baptized uh, Anglican. Although okay. throughout the course of his That's life, he, yeah, he, he had... And we will come to this uh, near the end. He he had a very serious flirtation with with Catholicism, um, and I believe even converted kind of finally uh, at the end. And there is on. something Catholic about his writing, and I don't even know what it is exactly. I, but yeah, if you would have told me he was I, a Protestant, I would have been surprised. 
Indeed, yeah. I think there, I think sure there's a feeling of that. Well, I mean, he's he's culturally extremely Irish. Yeah, uh, and that Irish identity is so uh, uh, sort of tied up with Catholicism that even you know maybe the way that uh, you know Catholics in America are all kind of Protestants. <laughs> there's no way out. <laughs> uh, you know, you sort of uh, have a similar thing going on mm-hmm. here. Um, so let me see. I want to sort of see if there's anything else in his. So let's talk a little bit. He, he was born. He attended the Portora Royal School for Boys, uh, which uh, pr- sounds quite fancy. We can fast forward a little bit. He he got into uh, Trinity College Dublin, which is the the college, the university in Dublin and in Ireland to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was awarded the Royal School Scholarship to attend. Uh, he did very well in classics. He studied um, Greek, uh, and if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, French. He was completely uh, fluent in Greek um, hmm. to the point where he, uh, in 74, he won the college's Berkeley gold medal for Greek, and he received a, what's called a demiship scholarship to Magdalen College at Oxford, hmm. uh, which means that I believe half of his tuition to Oxford was mm-hmm. was paid. I don't get the impression that the family would have would have struggled to pay for the whole thing, mm-hmm. but it's a matter matter of matter of uh, sort of status. Yeah. So yeah. we're talking no uh, no lightweight in just the probably the raw IQ department, high verbal IQ. Yes. And, and Which, came right. Which is obvious in reading a paragraph of his, but yes, yeah, With, without a doubt. Um, there's a little bit here that I don't want to miss. He he became associated with the emerging philosophy of aestheticism, which if you had to describe aestheticism, how would you describe it, Brad? Well, I don't know much about the capital A school, you know, philosophical school of aestheticism. It sounds to me like it's a sort of neighborhood of romanticism. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, you know, it obviously raises aesthetics to a high standard. There may be something about finding truth and beauty, something along those lines. Art for the sake of art. Okay. We're not doing anything political with art. Uh, In the preface to uh, the picture of Dorian Gray, which is the the novel that made him, made him truly famous, although he was famous to it to a point prior to that. Uh, In the preface of that, he famously wrote that, um, a book is not moral or, or, or not. A book is either uh, well or poorly written, something to that effect. Mm, uh, yeah, see, that's a man after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> so we are doing the thing for the, the, the thing. And mm-hmm. there's, there's this whole thread of thinking that follows us to this day where there's this idea that the artist creates himself. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know the source, but um, in my digging this, this past week into this, I believe he said something to the effect of the best thing a writer can do before becoming a writer is to become famous for something else. <laughs> oh, could you imagine Oscar Wilde on Twitter? See that? Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, it, you know, and the format of our show, I think I might have missed a beat where this is, this is the second episode. Yeah. So Brad, if you had to describe Oscar Wilde prior to going in deeper to this, what would you describe? Yeah, so um, as as somebody of Irish descent, uh, he is an attractive figure to me because he's one of the the people you point to when you say Irish people are good 
good at oh sure 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 yeah you know <laughs> hello there brad kelly yeah <laughs> right. so there's a handful one of, of ours one yeah. of us, one of us. <laughs> exactly yep. um, but but uh a bit of a dandy uh just a razor sharp wit um um his you know an amazing playwright i saw the importance of being earnest at a shakespeare festival someplace and was and, and was maybe my first real exposure to him and it was just bowled over by the um the pace of it so i just uh, my first exposure to him was just this like rapacious wit basically um and uh very familiar with Dor- picture of dorian gray um but beyond that about his life i don't know a whole lot other than it sort of devolved into scandal later later on right um, and, and it will get there i don't want to spoil it for anybody who doesn't know it but uh his fortunes took a pretty dark turn um about as bad as one could expect mm-hmm. extremely bad yeah uh, our previous uh subject burrows got literally got away with murder manslaughter yes, yes. And, and many wilde, other things right yeah. and yeah oscar wilde did not fare so well yeah and we'll come to that in the in the third act of uh of this episode uh i think in this episode because they're so great i'm just gonna smatter in some of the the quotes the the little epigraphs uh that he that he wrote these little witticisms um always forgive your enemies nothing annoys them so much <laughs> Send your, tweet. Yeah. <laughs> send tweet. Right. This is, we're never going to cover anyone who would have been more effective on right. Twitter. Yeah. No. Right. Right now, he would be on Twitter peppering scorn at blue right. checks. Right. He would be right. laughing and right. completely murdering them. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. On his third or fourth handle. Well, yeah. yeah or he, he, I think, I think he'd have one of his own, yeah. but he would be, he would be a subject of some um, concern. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I'm going to read two more uh, quickly before we get back into his life. Be yourself. Everyone else is taken. Mm-hmm. Um, this is great. Uh, this is a very funny one. All women become like their mothers. That is a tragedy. No man does. And that is his. <laughs> that's that's pretty it's funny but it's kind of deep i mean i I mean and and that if i'm not mistaken is a line uh from uh the importance of being earnest possibly possibly Mm -hmm. one of the plays he would he would use these lines in the plays and they would become these sayings and they Mm -hmm. would where most people would hope to get one great line you can't handle the truth his plays would have boom 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 just fire firecrackers um he was famous for uh, his, his witticisms. He was famous for his poetry. Um, he was famous for the picture of Dorian Gray for this novel. Um, and maybe I'll let you uh, describe that when we come to it, Brad, on um, what you remember of it. Mm-hmm. Um, he was famous for four major plays, um, uh, principally. And then he also wrote a prison um, letter, which is incredible. And then finally a poem um, uh, of about a hanging, which was his final, his final work. And, um, again, we'll come to all of that. So getting back to the timeline, um, uh, you know, he was at Trinity, um, where he, he rubbed shoulders with Walter Pater and John Ruskin. Are you familiar with these? Mm, Ruskin um, rings a bell, but I don't. Yeah. Don't these much. are the fellows, um, you know, they're essayists, writers, big shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would be the equivalent of someone now going to Yale and then going to do post or going to do graduate school at Harvard or something because he goes sure. on to Oxford. Um, one of the fun stories of his time at Oxford uh, is that 
he, I believe it was Oxford, he intentionally was seen to not be working. <laughs> he didn't want to, to appear to be too busy with himself, uh, with, with his studies. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end, <laughs> he completely uh, crushed and, and surprised everyone. Uh, <laughs> which I think is, is kind of wonderful. That's a good uh, move. Tells yeah. you a little bit about him. Yeah. Um, he had a flirt flirtation with Freemasonry uh, mm -hmm. while he was at Oxford, but that passed. Um, this is when Catholicism became quite, um, uh, you know, uh, interesting to him. He, I think he was nearly um, confirmed, if I'm not mistaken, uh, but he backed out at some okay. point for, uh, you know, um, which I'm sure it's somewhere deep in his soul. He knew this is, <laughs> this is probably not something that I I'm really able to, to come into, mm -hmm. um, you know, at this point I was, it's interesting because you, when you think about Oscar Wilde, you possibly think about, you think about his work as a writer, you think about his uh, homosexuality or his bisexuality, mm -hmm. but the religious stuff, as so often happens when we talk about um, these figures, kind of gets lost. Um, mm -hmm. But if you are, after listening to this episode or, you know, in your own time, uh, going to take it upon yourself to check out De Profundis, again, the prison letter. Uh, there's a wonderful reading of it online. You can actually find um, a reading that Patty Smith did of all the entire letter. It lasts over six hours. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yes, incredible. I listened to the one that was done by Neil Bartlett. Religion plays a huge role in his thinking and his, yeah. yeah. It, mm -hmm. it is interesting how we sort of forget the art an artist's religion, religiosity, sort of spiritual journey. And it will be sort of mentioned as a footnote. It'll be like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, he or she was a practicing whatever, you know. And, right. And as though it doesn't inform, as though Ev it doesn't inform everything, everything that they're doing. Yeah, you know? it's it really is telling in our time how kind of... Yeah, it's, it's presented it's as shunted. an oddity. Like mm -hmm. as, and he also golfed. That's kind of weird. Like it's on that <laughs> level right. of, of... Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm reading a little bit about him at Oxford. He wore his hair long, openly scorned manly sports. So when you said earlier he was a bit of a dandy, <laughs> this this guy was the dandy. Yeah. He was the arch dandy. Uh, he, it's too bad there was not color photography around. Uh, right. Right. Because didn't he wear pink? He was very Sometimes. famous. He was very uh, flamboyant. And yeah. right, so we're so he occasionally boxed, and boxing is going to come uh, into play here later when he meets Bozy, uh, his his the lover who would ultimately ruin him. Bozy's father um, was the Marquess of Queensbury, and the current boxing rules are still it go they go back to the Queensbury that, boxing. That was rules. his father. Was that he picked? Wild picked the wrong uh, young man to. <sighs> To have wow. an affair with. I did not know. I did not. I knew it was some heavy, you know, mm -hmm. some, I didn't know that. Um, just quick side note. If you ever watched the Mike Tyson mysteries, mm. um, one of the main character, one of the main characters of Mike Tyson mysteries is the ghost of the Marquis de Queen, Queensberry. <laughs> <laughs> it's very random. But... <laughs> that's, that's perfect. That's perfect. Well, so, so at uh, Oxford, he uh, decorated his rooms with peacock, uh, feathers, lilies, sunflowers, blue china, and um, ob object to art. He once remarked to his friends, I find it harder and harder every day to live up to my blue china. 
<laughs> the line became famous and was became a slogan of the esthetes. So these yeah. were the young ne'er do well uh, individualist uh, bucking the trend of uh conformity and all the rest in a, in a yep. funny way these would be like the takashi six nine mm. not quite mm. as hardcore but yeah. these are it's that type it's that yeah. these darn kids who do they think they are it's that but in in academia kind of right. flying at the highest levels of society right. do yeah. you think there was any moment of like i've read moments uh bits of david bowie's life where like one day he's like basically like this androgynous weirdo who everybody kind of yeah. threw rocks at and then a year later, everybody's dressing like him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. How yeah. dare he? And that is the reaction he wants. And, right. Uh, before you right. know it, he's getting all the attention. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I, I'm glad that you brought up Bowie, who will eventually um, mm. attempt to do. It's, right. occur it's occurring to me, we may need multi-part episodes. It's uh, possible at for some, some people. Yeah. Yeah. At some Around juncture. two later. Yeah. Yeah, there is zero way you miss the the line between Wild and Bowie, and really Wild mm -hmm. in our entire and rock and roll, mm -hmm. our entire age uh, mm -hmm. is is uh, a Wildian age. Mm -hmm. um, so we're still with him at Oxford. Uh, he was introduced there to the joys of the Greek ideal. Uh, so this this notion of neoclassicism, we're bringing back the the Greco Roman. Um, ideal of beauty. We're we're opening up the stuffy drawing room, and we are going to you know uh, remove all of the the sort of um, the dust, and we're going to look back to that golden age of of Greece um, and statuary and all the rest. Kind of everyone would have been influenced, I'm pretty sure, by Nietzsche at this point. Nietzsche is kind of in um, you know uh, in this uh, period. Um, so. Uh, he, according to several biographers, he expressed delight in um, other men's beauties and brilliance. He wrote of the pleasures of strolling around the grounds, um, you know, being among his peers. Of course, there were only men at the school. Mm -hmm. um, and he developed what you would call a Hellenistic ideal of mm -hmm. joining love and intellectual passion and intellectual growth. Um, and this was something that would, again, would come back later in the trial that he would face. Uh, his defense was something, had something to do with a poem that I believe Bozy wrote or someone in that milieu wrote about the love that shall not be named uh, mm -hmm. between older men and younger men and even boys. So we absolutely have to drift away from the pederasts. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're going to get episode three will not be about a pederast. I promise. Right. And, <laughs> in, 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 again, we're, we have to tread lightly here. Oscar, Oscar certainly did enjoy the affections of, of boys, but we were, we're talking about 18. We're talking about 17, mm -hmm. 18 years mm -hmm. old here. Mm -hmm. um, and this, this eventually would lead to his downfall, but not before he would, he would uh, be, be married. Uh, and and happily enough, uh, and have two children as well. So oh, I didn't even know mm -hmm. that. Okay, yeah. So yeah. there's this image that floats around of Oscar Wilde. There are a couple of mis misconceptions. He went to he went to prison for homosexuality. Well, for sodomy, yes, mm -hmm. technically. But we'll as we'll see, there is a lot more to that. Mm -hmm. uh, he certainly could have avoided it, and we'll get to that. Uh, the other the other sort of idea is that he was he was homosexual, and I I I think he you could probably make an, an argument that he 
he was bisexual potentially. It's, I think, I think earnest, you know, real biographers would probably have a deeper appreciation for that and probably diff, differing opinion, opinions because who really knows his heart. But I mean, he did really claim to love his wife. Uh, well, so, and, yeah. and, you know, a, a lot of men throughout history and even to this day have, have sort of hidden their homosexuality in a, in a marriage with a woman. But to me, it seems like from a, not knowing that much about him, he's such a um, self-possessed person mm. that he wouldn't marry someone to kind of hide in it, mm. if that makes sense. I, right. you know, it, and I don't know what went into it, but it seems to me like he would be the kind of person who's like, well, you know, maybe not outwardly gay because that was so difficult to pull off, but, but um, at least not pretend he was something completely different than what he was. I'm not a, a scholar of the period, but the impression that I have is that there was, everyone looked the other way, mm. as is so often the case with, with such things in history. Mm -hmm. You had these winks and these codes. I mean, even in our lifetimes, uh, mm -hmm. Brad, there was a certain, yeah. you just kind of, it doesn't really affect me too much. Yeah, we just we'll kind of look the other way. I think there was yeah. there was a lot of that happening, especially sure. in the bigger cities. And of course, at this point, the French had a much different attitude to things than the English, mm. which will will uh, will ultimately see. Okay. Um, so, before he left Oxford, he won the Newdigate Prize. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly for his poem Ravenna, and that reflected um, his visit there the year before. Um, and he read it at the, uh, what would you call it? What do we call it when everyone leaves the university? Um, they have a, a fancy graduation. word for it. Yeah, graduation. There you are. We're, <laughs> we're a couple of, we're some Commencement. Poets. Yeah, commencement, exactly. Yeah. So he read his poem. Um, he graduated in 1878 uh, with a double first, so crushed it, mm -hmm. with his uh, BA uh, in classics, um, basically the greats. Um, so if you're, if you're one of these people who thinks we have to completely eradicate the canon, well, maybe not. Oscar Wilde studied it. If it was good enough for Oscar Wilde, maybe, uh, maybe we should revisit, uh, learning Latin Greek and the, and the great poems of, uh, you know, the originators of Western, Western civilization, if we hope to be in dialogue with it, uh, or even to have one. In any case, he wrote to a friend that the Dons uh, are astonished beyond words, the bad boy doing so well in the end. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, he must so have he, loved that so much. Yes, right. Yeah. So you're, yeah. yeah, so you're, you create a stir. You mm -hmm. are surprising everyone. He was once, he was an imposing figure. He was over mm -hmm. six feet. Okay. Uh, he was a, a brawny fellow. Yeah. Um, it's saying here that at Oxford, he was once physically attacked by a group of four fellow students and dealt with them single-handedly. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> not, a, not an airy-fairy, full of right. lightweight right. either. Could, could right. handle himself. Yeah. Um, very funny. Uh, hmm. Right. So he, uh, we'll, we'll leave Oxford shortly, but it's saying by his third year, Wilde had truly begun to develop himself in his myth uh, and considered his learning to be more expansive than what was within the prescribed texts. Um, so he was rusticated for one term after he had returned late to a college term from a trip to Greece. What does, what does rusticated Yeah, mean? I don't know. It seems, let's see, rusticated. They use it at Oxford, Cambridge, and Durham. means to be sent down. You're expelled. Oh, So okay. he, he was okay. expelled for a semester. Wow. He's, yeah. he just rolled in late. 
Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, you know, not, not entirely playing by the rules. Yeah. Um, so that now we're going to move away from uh, the period of schooling. Um, before we do, I think we should, we should indulge ourselves in a few more yes. uh, quotes. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Life is far too important a thing to ever t- uh, talk seriously about. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's some, there's a certain amount of misogyny in this. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah but I'm going to read it. A man's face is his autobiography. A woman's face is her work of fiction. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, you know, these are things we could not get away with anymore. Yeah. Um, but I, this is so wonderful. Uh, I'm going to read two more. Uh, morality is simply the attitude we adopt towards people we personally dislike. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and this is another one. And he was not shy about his own brilliance. He said, I am so clever that sometimes I don't understand a single word of what I am saying. I mean, what fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I think there, there is an awful lot of dolorous kind of sadness about Oscar. Mm. There's this narrative mm. that, oh, no, he was ruined because of his affairs yeah. and everything. It's so yeah. sad. And it's like, well, yeah, but I mean, of all the people, of all the playwrights you'd like to have to dinner. I was going to say, he's got to be among the best dinner guests. Go, and you imagine when he was young, you know, 20, 22, going to the pub with with Oscar Wilde must have just been a riot. You're in Oxford, everyone's having fun. Yeah. You start you just start randomly you know reciting poetry but it's right, right, contextual. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. And perfectly yeah. appropriate and it's not yeah. about I mean if it is about jockeying for position it's all in good fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. So wonderful. So now we're getting into, into the idea of, uh, you know, his uh, debut in, in society. So he came back to, to Dublin. Um, so was he, I'm sorry, was he right? Is there evidence? Well, he was writing poetry, obviously, but was he right. dabbling in, while he was at Oxford, was he dabbling in, in writing? In place? I, you know, I couldn't answer that, but I yeah. don't, if he was, they never saw the light, the light of yeah. day. Okay, fair enough. Um, I do recall in my studies of him that he he did have, I think two or three aborted plays that never received a production mm. before he wrote Lady Windermere's Fan, okay. which was the one that put him on the map in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, we'll come to that. Um, so long story short, he spent some time in, in Dublin. Um, and then he, with the last of his inheritance from his father's house, from the sale of his father's house, he set himself up as a bachelor in London. Swing in London, yeah. 1881. <laughs> the census lists Wilde as a bachelor at one, uh, now 44, Tight Street, Chelsea. So you're right in the heart of it all. Um, and uh, Frank Miles, a society painter, was the head of the household. Um, mm. He had been publishing lyrics and poems in magazines since entering Trinity College. So like some of our friends uh, from, from the Michener Center, he had, he had been published in a number of magazines and chapbooks. He's sort of building his name. Uh, he was 27 years old when he published poems uh, that collected, revised, and expanded his poems. Um, the book sold out its first print run, 750 uh, copies. It was not well received uh, by the critics. Mm. Uh, magazine Punch, for example, said, the poet is wild, but the poetry's tame. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> 
So here we are, yeah. unavoidable. Yeah, and um, you know, poetry, I think it's important, and uh, anybody listening to this probably under- knows this, but it's important to think about how different, the different role that poetry played in society at this that time mm-hmm. versus now. Poetry now, there's great poetry coming out, but it, it's still, it's a bit of a... Um, it's it's a bit of a candle making coopering barrels kind of thing it's mm. it's a bit of a it's a bit of a it's a bit obscure the most famous poet the most successful book of poetry that comes out now is going to you know it's going to sell in the tens of thousands of copies probably if and i'm not celebrating that but, right but but in that time it was a major player on the artistic scene it, it would be comparable to being a major hip-hop artist you'd be like if yeah. you were a, 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 a hot poet in london you'd be like mm-hmm. kanye or right or jay-z right. or something yeah um yeah so i think that that it's interesting so he he it sold out, but he, this is interesting, by a tight vote, the Oxford Union condemned the book for alleged plagiarism, and the librarian who had requested the book for the library returned the presentation copy to Wilde with a note of apology, which must have must hmm. have stung. Um, who did he, uh, and I'm sorry if you didn't investigate this too deeply, mm-hmm. but who did, who, who was he plagiarizing from supposedly? I think it, they would have suggested it might've been other students would have been my guess. I see. Okay. Okay. Cause of course this would be, I mean, this would be like somebody saying, uh, oh, you're a joke thief. We were right. doing open mics together and you, uh, right. you stole a joke. Right. Uh, that, that would be my best guess. Yeah. Um, one reader uh, said that in his poem, Hellas, uh, there was a sincere though flamboyant attempt to explain the dichotomies the poet saw in himself. The line was, to drift with every passion till my soul is a stringed lute on which all winds can play. Ooh. So no slouch here. Yeah. Yeah. It, we're, we're, we're seeing the, you know, the sort of the move towards something. Um, mm-hmm. It had a further printing in 82, it was bound in a rich enamel parchment cover embossed mm. with uh, gilt blossom, and it was printed wow. on handmade Dutch paper. So I'm sure all by his direction. Oh, yes, right. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, it might have been his favorite part of the process. Absolutely. So, we've, <laughs> so he's kind of self-printing this stuff, and, and this is who I am, and I'm, I am mm-hmm. a poet now, and mm-hmm. I live in London, uh, and, and, and so forth. So now, this, this is where it gets interesting. I mean, I hope it's already been interesting, but I find this fascinating. So aestheticism with this movement that he had become the living embodiment of, living in London with his his background in education, mildly famous, uh, a figure for this movement, the dandy's dandy. Mm -hmm. It was sufficiently in vogue to be caricatured by Gilbert and Sullivan in a play called um, Patience. Mm. And an impresario uh, based on this. So I mean, we should we should talk briefly about the, the play Patience. It was a comic opera and uh, it's a satire of the aesthetic movement. So, uh, you know, it, it was it was about fads, superficiality, vanity, hypocrisy and pretentiousness. And they, they more or less put um, Oscar Wilde into the play. Right. So oh, he was okay. he, he had so associated himself with this movement that they, um, they you know, that that people saw wild in the play. Mm. Um, 
they are they are saying here that the identification was was retrospective, but in any case, the this play was a big enough hit, this opera was a big enough hit that somebody invited Oscar Wilde to do a lecture tour of the United States of North America. <laughs> Wait, okay. so they were basically trying to lampoon him, and he like used it to get fam- more famous. Absolutely. Nice. He, yes, this is a, he is the er example, the arch example of someone who's like, no press is bad right. press. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Mm-hmm. And here mm-hmm. he is being talked about. And so the, this figure um, invited him, invited him to do the tour and it was priming the pump for the U S tour of patients right? And selling the most charming esthete to the American public. Mm. So I'm sure the thinking went something like the Yanks have all the coin, right? Or have a lot of money. Mm. We want, we know this play, you know, it has legs, but they need to know what we're making fun of. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so Wild went along with it. And it's like, that sounds, you're going to pay me and people are going to clap at the end. So, and it it was (laughs) a huge hit. It was supposed to last four months, but it went on for a year. He famously, he's he's doing like, he's got the line between what he was doing right there and stand up comedy. There's got to be, a, a, a linkage there. Absolutely. We're, we're talking about this would be post Mark Twain. So mm-hmm. there is a tour. There's a circuit for this. Mm-hmm. Americans mm-hmm. want to come to see the dandy fellow from London who right. wears a carnation or, or whatever right. it is, some right. sort of flower in his lapel and lives mm-hmm. in London and writes poetry. And, right. and it's a novelty. But, he, mm-hmm. but he's also extraordinarily educated. He's, he knows right. Latin. He knows Greek. So people would come to these tours. Um, and so it lasted an entire month. He, he very famously, when he landed in, in uh, I think it was New York, he said, they asked, you know, Mr. Wilde, what do you have to declare? And he said, I have nothing to declare but my genius. <laughs> We're talking about somebody who I don't even think is, I don't even think he's 30 at this point. Right. I was going to say, yeah. How old is he? So, yeah. Yeah. so um, he, what he did with these lectures is he, he attempted to transpose the beauty he saw in art into daily life. Mm. And it was a philosophical project. He was trying to show the Americans, uh, you know, this way of life where, where beauty could, could exist for beauty's sake. And of course, we're talking, really talking about the rough frontier still at this point. There's a mm-hmm. fine film, which it I would recommend. 1880 something, right? 1880. And yeah. if it's to believe, there's a, there's a fine film where Jude Law plays Bosey and um, uh, Fry, I can't remember his first name. Um, uh, in, in any case, uh, the actor Fry plays Wild. It's like it was made in the late '90s. It's just one of those great period movies. Does a fine job of taking you through uh, Oscar's scandal and all the rest. And it begins with him visiting a silver mine in Colorado. Oh, wow! And he, really? Yeah, and he arrives on a horse and he sits with all these miners <laughs> and he explains Homeric poetry to them and and why it's wonderful and they should they should, you know, expose themselves to these things. Just wonderful yeah. to think about. Oh, uh, how would you like to be a fly on the wall for that? Yeah. For, yeah. I would, I mean, seeing one of those, uh, seeing one of these lectures sounds to me like that would be a riot. That would be, I right. imagine hilarious and enlightening. Um, well, yeah. Well now, of course he, 
it was controversial as well. Mm. So somebody wrote that um, his conduct was more a bid for notoriety that rather than the devotion to beauty and aestheticism. There was a cleric and an, a- an abolitionist, um, T.W. Higginson, wrote in Unmanly Manhood uh, that he had a concern that Wilde, uh, that it was his only distic- distinction is that he has written a thin volume of very mediocre verse and that he would improperly influence the behavior of men and women. So this is Elvis. Right. Elvis has arrived. <laughs> Young Elvis has arrived and he's, he's showing you, oh, you can live a different way. You can read, mm. you can read Greek poetry, etc. And of course, he's also Irish, which right. uh, we have a certain, yeah, um, there's a, uh, there's a biographer who claims that Wilde was the subject of anti-Irish caricature and was portrayed as a monkey, a black-faced uh, performer, and uh, Christie's minstrel throughout his career. Harper's Weekly put a sunflower-worshipping monkey dressed as Wilde on the front of the January 1882 issue. Uh, so you have this kind of mixed reception, although certainly they were, they were trying to... Um, to cultivate that. No, again, no press is bad press. Um, the press rep- uh, reception was hostile. He was well-received in diverse settings. And I'm reading here, he drank whiskey with uh, miners in Leadville, Colorado, wow. um, and was taken out to most of the fashionable salons in many of the cities he visited. Wow. I did. I couldn't, I never would have imagined that he had visited Colorado, honestly. Yeah, that's, you, that's really interesting. It just blows the mind, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can almost can't believe it. So now he's now he's rich, okay, uh, yeah. right? And so uh, they're they're saying that he had some income from something called the Duchess of Padua. It's a play by Oscar Wilde, so it must have been he must have kicked off his um, his playwriting career at this point. But he's he's doing well at this point. He's had a and, and if you can, I'm sure it was just like the Beatles. Uh, you have this English invasion, this this Anglo-Irish invasion of the of the United States. Now you come back to London, and you're internationally known, mm. right? So he moves he moves back to or he comes back to London after an entire year in the United States, and this is where he meets Constance Lloyd, who would become uh, his first first wife, um, and they they became married. They had luxurious tastes. They were doing well. Uh, they had a reputation for being um, preachers on the subject of design. Uh, oh, okay. And to the point where their their own home, they had to set a new standard. Mm. They were under the the glass, so to speak. Mm. Um, and accordingly, the, the house was duly renovated in seven months <laughs> at <laughs> considerable <laughs> expense. Um, sure. Yeah. So they they had two sons together, uh, and this is an interesting factoid. Wilde became the sole literary signatory of George Bernard Shaw's petition for a pardon of the anarchists arrested after the Haymarket massacre in Chicago in 1886. Oh. So hmm. playing with fashionable left-leaning politics, mm-hmm. if he's associating with Shaw mm-hmm. and, and making these points. Um, so... Now we're going to move into uh, another phase, and we're gonna we're gonna get into the the juicy stuff. <laughs> the he's, I mean, stuff. he's when he comes back from just give me a sense when he comes back yeah. from America, he's thirty, thirty two. Right, we're talking about at this point eighteen eighty five, eighteen eighty six, and he was 
born in 54. So okay. we're, yeah. we're looking at a young man in his early 30s. Wow. Correct. Good for him. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he did it. He is, he is living the high life. He's got, the, he's got his whole life um, ahead of him. He has degrees from Trinity and Oxford. He's well-loved in the United States by the people, if not the press. Uh, and he just has... Um, I, you know what? I'd take the people over the press any day of the week. <laughs> I don't think you're alone there. <laughs> and we are rapidly approaching the picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, but before we do, let's indulge ourselves in a few more of his, uh, his oh, quotes. They're so much fun. Uh, you can never be overdressed or overeducated. <laughs> I don't want to go to heaven. None of my friends are there. <laughs> right? A good friend will always stab you in the front. <laughs> Just these, uh, just throw away. Yeah, yeah. they're wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can just it just you can imagine the little book you know next to the toilet. Just oh yeah. There, yeah, and if there isn't one, I'm gonna put one together and make a mint on you know Amazon Kindle. Well, so now we're we're gonna fast forward into 1890 and the year 1890, and he publishes a novel. The picture of Dorian Gray in Lippincott's magazine. And what do you know? Have you read uh, the novel, Brad? Yeah, I've read the picture of Dorian Gray uh, two, twice. And there's not a lot of books I've read twice. Um, uh, the first was in uh, when I was getting my undergrad in, in English. And uh, I encountered the figure of Oscar Wilde and him being Irish and him being this... this um, I'm trying. I'm trying to avoid the pun, but you know, I was very, I was very drawn to, <laughs> I was very drawn to transgressive figures at that time, and I guess still mm. am. I mean, we're doing this podcast, so, um, so you know, I was, I sort of was like, well, okay, what is his most famous work? And I had, I, I believe at that point, I had seen um, the importance of being earnest and been really impressed by it, and um, I don't know what I expected reading the a picture of Dorian Gray, but I was. I was overwhelmed by how strong the sentence level writing is. So on the one hand, you have this almost archetypal story. It, it, it's the, it, it feels now, now to mention Dorian Gray, it has, it has achieved this sort of mythological stature, something like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of, you Absolutely. know, where it, it's just a reference and everybody kind of understands the vibe of it, even if they don't really know anything about the book. I mean, Oscar Wilde is a character or sorry, Dorian Gray is a character in uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, for instance. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so it has this stature of like a story that has always been there kind of, um, Yes, but, and, and yeah. his father had written books on folklore and all the rest. So, okay, he, yeah. he, you know, do you know? It's funny. It yeah. would come back. The novel has this folkloric quality. Right, yeah. yeah, this sort of mythological. Yeah, it's a story that somebody might tell you over drinks, you know, to, to, to drive home a message. But it doesn't, it doesn't feel, it, it doesn't feel um, like it has a moral as strongly as, as the, par the parable version of it does. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's a novel about... Uh, a not completely un Oscar Wildean character, um, Dorian Gray, who is a bit of a socialite and is a bit of an intellectual and is wealthy. And um, 
he has has somehow I don't remember exactly how, but has sort of stumbled upon this magic trick of having a picture of himself, a portrait of himself, which ages, and uh, as it ages, he basically doesn't age. So he's a young man in his prime, you know, and there's intimations that he kind of thinks that this will go on forever while the portrait gets older and older and older. And because of this sort of everlasting youth, um, he, you know, travels, he collects strange things, he, he, he expands his intellectual sphere. I believe he becomes an opiate, opium addict, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Sounds right. I, I yeah. didn't reread it, but yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a morality story in that sense of like, you know, this idea of like, it's driving home this point of you're not going to be young forever kind of thing. Right. Um, and you can feel maybe Oscar Wilde grappling a little bit with his own aging process, probably, mm-hmm. um, even though he was still a young man. Um, you know, fire that burns that hot doesn't necessarily get to burn forever sometimes. So, yes. um, well, he was, he was making a case for his aesthetic position yes. yeah. and the preface, which I'm going to read a portion of now, uh, caused yeah. a bit of a scandal. So he said in the preface, he wrote, the artist is the creator of beautiful things to reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. The critic, uh, is he who can translate into another manner or a new material his impression of beautiful things. Mm. The highest as the lowest form of criticism is a mode of autobiography. Those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. This is a fault. Those who find beautiful meanings in beautiful things are the cultivated. For these, there is hope. They are the elect to whom beautiful things mean only beauty. There is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That is all. Mm. Mm-hmm. So imagine publishing your, your novel, which ultimately becomes your only novel, and you immediately take on the critics in the preface to it. Right. What are you, right. <laughs> right. you, you going to say? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. And, and making your case for, case for your own novel. And, and as a writer, I have, I have a hard time disagreeing with any of that. I, I, get, um, I'm, I feel a little... Um, alienated by the idea by the fact that almost every book that rises to some level of attention now even if it in and of itself isn't politicized it seems to be the conversation around it ends up getting politicized identity politics or whatever it's like you know i i don't know about you but i didn't really get into the game of writing it's not what wakes me up in the morning to try and make some kind of political point to move the political football for the democrats or the republicans one inch or another right yeah i mean i'm much more i guess in the aesthetic in the aesthetics aestheticism camp i think a lot of people are yeah yeah it's like you know when you were a kid when i was a kid i was like i just want to tell stories and then you know, later on got obsessed with words and was like, I want to tell a story and I want to write, I want to make something beautiful. Mm. And the politics stuff. Even the word beautiful coming out of your mouth uh, in America right now in 2021, it sounds so strange. Right. What? Right. No, no. Everything has to be ugly and annoying and grating and you have to reflect the horror of the, uh, you know, so, but there can be beautiful, there can be beauty and horror. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah. there's, there's, there's ruin porn, right? I mean, you know, there is, <laughs> yeah. there is a beauty, there is a beauty in sort of decay and repulsiveness. There's a way to represent it. It's not beautiful, but. Well, so reviewers immediately criticized the novel's decadence and homosexual illusions. Uh, the Chronicle, for example, called it unclean, poisonous, and heavy with the mephitic odors of moral and spiritual putrefaction. Oh my God. And of course, he, he responds saying, it, you know, if a work of art is rich and vital and complete, those who have artistic instincts will see its beauty, and those to whom ethics appeal more strongly will see its moral lesson. Mm. Um, he, he did revise the novel before its publication in, in 91, because of course it was published in the magazine first. Mm -hmm. He added some chapters, okay. some of the more overtly decadent passages in the homoeroticism were excised. Oh, and, okay. then he, and then he added the preface. So that's interesting. I see. I see. Yeah. 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 I, I will say just before we say too much, like from as a, as a writer thinking about the craft of writing a novel, that book on like a sentence and paragraph level is as well written as anything I've ever read. Yes. Like period. It's, it's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, anybody out there who's trying to learn how to, you know, it, get better at writing sentences, you can do a lot worse than, than carefully reading through the, uh, uh, Dorian Gray. And now because we're, we're still in wonderful London, one of my favorite cities in the world, there is a plaque that commemorates uh, the dinner between Wilde and Arthur Conan Doyle um, uh, and the publisher of Lip and Cuts magazine. Um, and this plaque commemorates that dinner they had um, that led to him writing the picture of Dorian Gray. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, it's a big deal. This is a good book. You, mm -hmm. It's really worth reading. Um, uh, one final point, point about it is that the contemporary reviewers and modern critics have postulated numerous possible sources of the story, which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, one person um, argues it's futile. Uh, this is uh, someone named McCormick says it's futile because Wilde has tapped a root of Western folklore so deep and ubiquitous that the story has escaped its origins and returns to the oral tradition. Right. It's like trying to say, well, where did uh, they get the inspiration for Noah's Ark? Right. Kind of thing. It's like, it, no, this is a story that's like too old to, to source. Yeah. And I think this is just such a great example of someone who has prepared himself and studied and learned different languages and immersed himself in reading and culture and all of the rest of it to the point where I would imagine something like this probably came to him in, in, a, in a spurt. You know, mm. almost like this fugue. I don't know, you know, but you can imagine someone who's just completely um, in it so much that then when it comes time to sit down and pen the, the masterpiece, it comes. Wilde himself claimed the plot was an idea that is a, as old as the history of literature, but which uh, to which I have given a new form. Um, so fantastic. So we're going to we're going to talk now about um, his theatrical career which leads up to the trial okay. and the, the dirt, which brings us to uh, the, the, the conclusion. So we've got some time left here. Um, so he, he wrote a number of plays. He's famous for Salome, which I'm not um, too familiar with. It's a tragedy. It tells the story of Salome, the stepdaughter of uh, Herod Antipas. I'm not familiar with this. This is still uh, performed and, and done. Um, and uh, I'm much more familiar with the, what they call the comedies of society. 
Now, if you if you leave, you know, listening to this podcast thinking, ah, maybe Oscar Wilde, it's not so much for me, but you know you need to expose yourself a little bit to the to the man. If you do nothing else but watch the the production of The Importance of Being Earnest, uh, which it's a film. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the woman who's very famous for her part as Lady Bracknell. Um, let me see. If I, I should have had that prep, but that's fine. Uh, she was played by, let me, let me find this in the film. Yeah, I've never seen this. this You've is, never this seen this film? to me. I got to watch. You, I would, I would okay, I got to stop. A handbag? <laughs> a handbag? She's very famous for that line in the, in the film. Because are you familiar with the, with the, the plot? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I, yeah, vaguely familiar with the plot. Very familiar with the vibe of it, I would say. Yeah. Edith Evans. Edith Evans very famously played uh, Lady Bracknell. If I'm not... So when mistaken. was this film version? I mean, 1952. Talking... Oh, okay, okay, yeah. It is. It is essential watching. It's fun. It holds up. Uh, it's this comedy of manners. It's mistaken identities. Mm-hmm. Most of his comedies uh, function that way. Any ambitious playwright, any new playwright, owes it to themselves to watch how these plays function. I saw a very fine production of uh, Lady Windermere's Fan, which. I wasn't even familiar with. Um, there's a production that was done by a theater company on the West End of London in 2018, and they recorded it and put it on YouTube, oh, cool. and it's very good. And it's not just a flat camera. They did some camera work. There's okay. enough where it kind of moves. It's not like watching a film. It's definitely like okay, I'm watching a play, but it has right. enough where you kind of get the idea of the plot. And that was the one that really set him on his way in terms of being a playwright, a, res- a respected known playwright in London. And as someone who's had the slightest touch of that, that's a cool feeling. They still respect playwrights over there. And he, he eventually built himself up to, to being, if not the most famous, certainly one of the most famous playwrights um, in London, which is an entree into society and, and all the rest oh, of it. Yeah. It would be comparable to being uh, a very, very famous rock star or a, uh, mm-hmm. a rapper or something mm-hmm. um, and respected and well-loved um, for the ability to write these, these stories. Uh, Lady Windermere's fan is this story about a woman who believes her husband and it, See, playwrights need to study this stuff because it's all about the setup and you sort of mm. keep the audience looking and keep them watching. And it might seem like, oh God, it's so tired. We, why would we, we write plays like this anymore? Well, because they're riveting because right. we're still doing them over a hundred right. years later. They're interesting. It's fun. People like to sort of see mistaken identity and uh, one group of characters knows one thing and another group doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, and dramatic irony. Dramatic man. irony. Lost art. It is. And it's so yeah. silly because it works. Mm-hmm. It works. It goes all the way back to the Greeks, you know? So, um, you know, in Lady Windermere's fan, she, she thinks her husband is cheating on her. Oh, what scandal. And so now we're getting into sort of what Wilde built his career on as a playwright. And he had been, been doing it for years, poking fun at society, poking it's fun that, it's, at... It's mm-hmm. deeply satirical, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, deeply. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and right. And, and these jokes, these, the, like uh, the more misogynistic thing that I said earlier, if you, if you lift that and you say that in, in the dark, you sound like a jerk. But when you say it in the context of a play where one character is making a point about other characters and you know the audience is populated by men and women, everybody has a little laugh. Right. Because right, right. it's naughty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and you're not supposed to say it in half the audience because nobody, you know, men aren't going stag to the theater, right? We're taking, right. you know, you're taking your, your lady 
city and mm -hmm. and it's a, a night out and you know mm -hmm. uh, so much so much contemporary stand up hinges on that mm -hmm. you got to make everybody mm -hmm. just a little bit uncomfortable but in mm -hmm. lady windermere's fan the the protagonist the the lady the woman thinks her husband is cheating on her because he's spending all sorts of time with another woman well it turns out the other woman is this um this main character's mother but mm. she she ruined herself um uh, by having having a child out of wedlock. Mm -hmm. And so they've told her all her life that her mother is dead, but now, in fact, her mother's trying to get back in touch for various reasons. Oh. Totally worth watching. Yeah, yeah, right. And it pulls at yeah. you, and it's very dramatic yeah. and, and, and wonderful. So we're getting now um, to the point where we're going we're gonna to flash forward in the interest of time and get to um, his affair uh, and his meeting with Lord Alfred, uh, Alfred Douglas um, Bosey. Now, Wilde prior to, prior to this had been having affairs. He'd been, he'd had male lovers, um, but nothing like Bosey. Uh, now, Bosey and uh, Wilde uh, struck an intimate friendship. Um, by 1893, he was infatuated and it had a, they had a tempestuous affair. Um, I, I crunched some numbers and, uh, because what ends up happening, of course, is that Wilde lands himself in prison and he writes De Profundis, which is a letter, uh, written to Bosey. To Bosey, okay. And he talked about how much he was spending on Bosey. Um, he was, Wilde at this time was earning up to a hundred pounds a week from his place. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so he was, I mean, we're talking money rich right. i don't know what the what the equivalent is now but you can about imagine well i uh, remember hearing from the same era that 100 pounds for a year was like a significant amount of money no doubt and yeah. wild was rich rich right. um successful and here comes this younger man um and apparently i crunched some numbers in in de profundis wild wild claimed that he spent something like six hundred and fifty thousand dollars on bosey whoa <laughs> a handbag <laughs> and um <laughs> that's the famous line from from the importance of being earnest if you want to know why we keep doing it it's because in the play in that wonderful play the the main character um has to explain to lady bracknell his origins because of course for society for a society woman to to give her daughter away uh you have to know who you're who you're marrying right how yeah, much, the family mm, and the, yeah yeah his background etc so he goes through this whole rigmarole and it's one it's one of the greatest scenes in all of drama it's one of the most comic scenes but he he has to admit that he was he was a foundling he was found um at, at the uh, whatever it is the, uh, the the coat room in Victoria Station, mm. the Brighton line, and she says the line is immaterial. <laughs> <laughs> so he's it's so wonderful. It plays on so many different anxieties. <laughs> like he's gonna like like. <laughs> Like he's gonna find his way to some sort of status by saying it was Which it was the Brighton was. line, you know. <laughs> Clearly, it must I must have come from a good family, Brighton, you know, something like that. And then and then you know, and and she says, and what was this you know parcel that they found you in? She and he goes, well, a handbag, <laughs> a handbag. <laughs> And then she goes on to say, you know, I will not have my daughter marrying into a, a parcel, marrying into a coat room, you know, just, just, <laughs> and of course it's so absurd. Right. And, 
he's poking fun at this society, which is dying, which is on its way uh -huh. out, right? These are the mm -hmm. last throes of that sort of Victorianism. Uh, and to this day, this idea of romantic love is something that we still live with. Of course, mm -hmm. people make these strategic alliances and have these strategic mar marriages. It goes on to this day. And everyone, you have to be somewhat sensible in marriage, right? You want to marry well, but it's nothing like um, mm. nothing like it was then. And he's poking fun at it and you owe it to yourself to watch that. If nothing else, it is, it's, it's a hoot. Um, mm -hmm. so he, he's having this, uh, this affair, um, with Bosey and Lord Alfred's father. So this is another point I think that needs to be made. Um, and Bosey rightly levied this back at Oscar. I, I think Oscar enjoyed, uh, uh, having a love affair with someone with a title probably you can yeah. you can think that you're as democratic or you know as 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 you are but then when you meet somebody with a title like that you go oh whoa this is a, this is a lord uh mm -hmm. even if it's a minor title there's just this sort of outsider insider thing it's it's almost just just a way of kind of funnily sort of claiming a prize in a funny way mm -hmm. um and i think i you could easily levy that against um against Oscar. He was nothing if not vain. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Right. Certainly vain. If this, if this uh, subject of, of tonight's podcast had any one fatal flaw, it was his, his vanity. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, I'm sure he, he well, and he, he, he would ultimately recognize it in, in De Profundis. Um, so he's gallivanting about around town with, uh, with Lord Alfred Douglas, who is um, with Bosey, who uh, is at Oxford in his own right, and that's how they sort of hit it off, right? We, oh, you're at, you're at Oxford. Well, I was at Oxford. Um, you know, this kind of thing still goes on to this day, how, doesn't how, it? So, and, <clears throat> so ages here. So, just thinking. So, Oswald's yeah. late thirties, and Bosey was born in uh, nineteen seventy, and he lived to nineteen forty-five. Um, so mm -hmm. he would have been twenty-one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 21. So you know, this isn't a boy. This is a young man mm -hmm. um, at Oxford and, you know, they're in an affair. Now, Bosey introduces Wilde to the underworld of uh, gay prostitution in London. Mm -hmm. And so they are, they are out and about. Um, Wilde is having, you know, gay sex with um, young working class male prostitutes, rent boys, um, and with, with other, with other figures in society. Um, Wilde would meet the boy, offer him gifts, dine him privately, and then take him to a hotel room. Uh, so Wilde at this point was, was definitely stepping out on his wife frequently. Uh, and with Bosey, he kind of met his match and especially Bosey's father, um, who I apparently figures in the, uh, the Mike Tyson Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, well, he mm -hmm. invented, he invented modern boxing rules. So, right. yeah. 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 So we're going to meet, uh, the villain here. So Lord Alfred's father, the Marquess of Queensbury was known for his outspoken atheism, brutish manner, and the creation of modern rules of boxing. So you can imagine this is a pretty combative fellow. This is yeah. not somebody who's going to roll over. Right. Um, so he feuded with his own son and he confronted Wilde and Lord Alfred about the nature of their relationship several times. Mm -hmm. um, Wilde was able to cool him off. Finally, he, he, in 1984, June, he called on Wilde uh, at 16 Tight Street, no appointment. So Poppin, uh, Seinfeld <laughs> Poppin, <laughs> and said to him, I do not say that you are it, but you look it and pose as it 
which is just as bad. And if I catch you with my son again in any public restaurant, I will thrash you. To which Wilde responded, I don't know what the Queensbury rules are, but the Oscar Wilde rule is to shoot on sight. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> uh, so very funny. Yeah. Um, so this was becoming a very serious problem. Now, to percolate the drama further, Wilde has written um, his greatest play. He's written The Importance of Being Earnest. It's his masterpiece. If you can do nothing but write one play like this, you're, you're head and shoulders above most of humanity. Uh, it, was, it was first performed on uh, 14th of February, 1895 at St. James Theatre in London. Um, he was collaborating with an actor-manager um, they revised it, worked on it, prepped every, every line, um, and they, they constructed this representation of late Victorian society and mocked it. Mm-hmm. Um, they, he shortened the play from four acts to three, which is always a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as the audience pays, the audience doesn't pay to say, see the play, they pay for the permission to leave. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, quite, it's quite true. Um, so... You know, they're having a huge party and there's an actor, um, Alan Ainsworth, who played Algernon, one of the main characters, recalled, in my 53 years of acting, I never remembered a greater triumph than that first night. Mm. Um, And it finally, you know, solidified his reception as his best work to date. And it solidified his fame, but not just fame for fame's sake, as a solid artistic reputation. And this play is still rightly performed all around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again, it's just wonderful. Now, at the same time, the feud with Queensberry was escalating and uh, to the point where Queensbury had planned to insult Wilde publicly by throwing a bouquet of rotting vegetables onto the stage. <laughs> Wilde was tipped off and had Queensbury barred from entering the theater. 15 weeks later, from one of the greatest triumphs in the history of the theater, mm-hmm. Wilde was in prison. Jeez. 15 weeks later, from standing on stage to uh, an, ov- an ovation, a beloved playwright in London, he would be doing hard labor. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about how he got there, and that will, that will bring us near to the conclusion. Let's read a few more fun little yeah. pithy sayings. Yeah, to kind of bring take... it up before we bring it down. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, this is a good one. I am not young enough to know everything. <laughs> this is this is wonderful, and this again, you know, you talk about Bowie. I think a bit, and obviously, he's not very well liked right now. But Marilyn Manson, right? Mm-hmm. This this idea of the bad boy. The, mm-hmm. the, this is very much what he cultivated. Here's a quote: "You will always be fond of me. I re- represent to you all the sins you never had the courage to commit." Oof. <laughs> right yeah 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 amazing one more uh oh two more experience is merely the name men give to their mistakes Ooh, yeah yep yeah. one more i never travel without my diary one should always have something sensational to read on the train <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretty sure that's from Ernest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, just wonderful, right? I, and it's worth saying, if you're a writer, boy, and I'm reminding myself right now, keep a little notepad around and yeah. let, let these little things uh, percolate and come to the, yeah. come to the top. Yeah. All right, so 
We're approaching the trial here. Uh, I'll attempt to, co- to keep it somewhat short. Long story short, and this is the subject of a great deal of the Wild uh, biography. If you watch a film about Wild or you read about Wild or you hear about Wild, this tends to be what people fixate on. Um, now, English law um, is different in the United States from from the United States around libel. Libel is still a really serious thing in the United Kingdom, and you can you can really be dragged into court over it. In the United States, it takes a lot more to for that charge to stick. I'm not a lawyer, but we have the First Amendment, and so our speech is protected, and so libel is uh, just uh, libel laws are a lot weaker. Wild, um, uh, okay, so the Marquess left his calling card at Wilde's club. So everybody has clubs in London. They still do. Um, the album are. And he inscribed his card saying, for Oscar Wilde, posing somdomite. And he did misspell it for whatever reason. Now, maybe okay. he was, maybe he meant to do it. Maybe he didn't. In any case, I don't think he was the, the sharpest uh, you know, attack in the, in the box. A lot of blows um, to the head, probably. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> now, Wilde was encouraged by Bosey and against the advice of his friends, he invited a private prosecutor, um, or a, a rather a, a prosecution against Queensbury for libel, since the note amounted to a public accu- accusation that What's Wilde that? had committed sodomy. Queensbury was arrested for criminal libel, which is a charge that carries up to two years in prison, or carried up to two years in prison at the time. Wow. So. Wilde and his lover, his young lover, who, who was estranged from his father, who despised his father. And who were... Sodomites. We're right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Committing sodomy on a regular basis. Big okay. time. Yeah. Right? Now... Mm. And in, not that there's anything wrong with that. No, not that there's... We would never... Of course not. Uh, but this, if, if this podcast does nothing else, I do want to push back against the notion that Wilde was a victim um, entirely here of these, uh, these laws. Um, he himself would eventually reflect in De Profundis that his mistake was appealing to the society that he had made a living standing away from and mocking. He appealed to the courts and of course it was not going to go his way. In hindsight, it's absolutely crystal clear that he was on a uh, fool's errand here and being marched off a cliff. Uh, and, and Bozy was playing the fiddler. Uh, quite tragic in hindsight. Wild could have avoided this. Uh, and of course, many, many thousands of people were imprisoned on these awful laws. And, and it's uh, needless to say, it's, it, it, we live in a better time in that respect. Um, but it isn't so cut and dry that they they caught Wild with a rent boy and mm-hmm. and dragged him down. It, that, that was a that was a thing that could have been hushed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was again a society where this was winked at. You kind of mm-hmm. would, especially at this level, right? Well, we just mm-hmm. we're just not going to talk about it. Okay, there's mm-hmm. a there's a poofy uh, playwright. Well, okay, They're, they all are. <laughs> what he's if, making he's know. making a lot of people a lot of money. He's a making lot of a lot of like people. Him, exactly. you know. yeah, yeah, right, right. He knows, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lords and ladies, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, this wasn't a minor indiscretion. This was involving himself in a feud with a lord who had invented the rules of boxing. <laughs> So, ill-advised. So now, uh, Queensbury could avoid conviction of libel only by demonstrating that his accusation was true, and furthermore, that there was some public benefit to having made the accusation. 
his lawyers then hired private detectives to find evidence of homosexual liaisons, not too difficult to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, his friends told him, Frank Harris told him, his friend, they're going to prove sodomy against you. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to prove sodomy. They're going to prove sodomy. They're going to prove Gomorrah. Nobody even knows new, who that is. <laughs> new kinds of sex that we don't even, not even aware of. Yeah, you're done. You're going down, son. Um, I mean, you don't know. You're up against a character in the Mike Tyson <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chronicles. It, it, and his friends advised him to flee to France. And this reminds me of uh, Socrates. There's a quality here where you're dealing with a condemned man who could have, he could have gotten on the boat to Calais and gone to France and lived in exile, waited it for, for it to cool off, written his plays and been fine. But of course, this, is, this man is a fixture in London. He just had one of the, again, the greatest, you know, uh, opening nights in, in history and his family is there. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, he was quite incensed and uh, George Bernard Shaw witnessed the scene, uh, of his friends trying to interfere. Um, and he just didn't, he didn't do it. So Mm -hmm. now, do you think there was um, some ego involved in that? There must've been huge, right? I am, you're a nothing. You're right. a, you may be a Lord, but right. I am the King. I am right. the, the, uh, the Celtic King of the London theater scene. Right. right. And I will, I will stand up to this, to your, your bullying. Right. So again, I think he's, he's on the Oxford yard and the bullies are approaching and he stands his ground and he, and he right. fights them. So this image of him is like kind of a frail, um, you know, fairy kind of airy fairy, not, not correct. Yeah. Um, but to the world of the Victorian underground, um, his association with blackmailers and male prostitutes, cross-dressers, brothels, it didn't take long. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they were coerced to appear as witnesses mm-hmm. um, because they were accomplices as well. So mm-hmm. they leaned on, on these people. I assume maybe a little money ext- you know, changed hands. These people are probably not very expensive people to, to bribe. And the trial opened and the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, the, the opposing prosecution, um, Carson was a fellow Dubliner who had also attended Trinity. Um, he handled the cross-examination. Uh, and they, they used his, his literature and his writing against him. Um, they, the, this lawyer tried to justify Queensbury's character, characterization of Wilde by quoting from Wilde's novel, referring to a scene um, in which uh, one of the characters explains his decadent philosophy to Dorian, an innocent young man. And then it wasn't very difficult for them to, to bring forth the, these lower class men, these rent boys. Um, and, uh, and that did not go well. And so he, he, you know, Queensbury clearly wins and the defense uh, leaves um, uh, Wild bankrupt because of the loss. So now Wild has, has lost it all. Uh, including the rights to his place. Whoa. Everything. 
everything oh. for accusing. The stakes could not have been higher. About the only oh. thing they could have done to him that would have been worse is, is death. The death penalty right. or more yeah, time. See, in my head, when you said, okay, brought libel laws, and it's like, okay, well, he can't prove that. To me, it's like, well, it's a lawsuit that just didn't go well. But I mean, right. it had a cascading kind of effect. Yeah. It says here, Queensbury's acquittal rendered Wilde legally liable for the considerable expenses, and that left him wow. bankrupt. Wow. Okay. Uh, so terrible. And mm-hmm. so now we're in. Now we're in court because Wilde is dragged to court for somnomy. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> and gross indecency. Yeah, it's um, not. Somnomy isn't as fun when you're talking about it in court as it is when you're doing it. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, and this this had, must have been surreal for a while because we're talking mm-hmm. about as as high as you can get to about as mm-hmm. low as you can get, and now your dirty laundry is being mm-hmm. aired in public, and you're being accused of buggery. Right, um, right. Oof. So. This is just tragic because his friends told him to go get on a boat. His yeah. mother, his mother told him to stay and fight, and mm. he said, "Finally, the train has gone. It's too late." He was arrested for gross indecency because this came out in court. His stuff came out in court, mm-hmm. so now they have him. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he's packing, etc. And so he's dragged into into court. And um, Charles Gill, the prosecutor, talked about this poem that had been written. Um, and he asked, what is the love that dare not speak its name? And that comes from, I think it's important to contextualize it. It's the last line of a poem from Lord Alfred Douglas, written in 92 from Bosey, published in the Oxford Magazine. And it's quite emotional now to think about this, right? Here's a man who was at the Heights. His own lover has architected his ruin unwittingly. Mm-hmm. in this feud with his father and they're using his own lover's poem against him. And, right. and Wilde's response is lovely. I'm going to read it. He said, the love that dare not speak its name in this century is such a great affection of an elder for a younger man as there was between David and Jonathan, such as Plato made the very basis of his philosophy and such as you find in the sonnets of Michelangelo and Shakespeare. It is that deep spiritual affection that is, that is as pure as it is perfect. It dictates and pervades great works of art like those of Shakespeare and Michelangelo and those two letters of mine such as they are. It is in this century misunderstood, so much misunderstood that it may be described as the love that dare not speak its name. And on that account of it, I am placed where I am now. It is beautiful. It is fine. It is the noblest form of, of affection. There is nothing unnatural about it. It is intellectual and it repeatedly exists between an older and a younger man when the older man has intellect and the younger man has all the joy, hope, and glamour of life before him. That it should be so, the world does not understand. The world mocks at it and sometimes puts one in the pillory for it. Hmm. And that did not help his defense because it was reinforcing the charge. That was very moving. Why is that not sort of used? Well, I guess it does talk about the older and the younger. I, it, to me, it seems like there's something in there that the, the sort of the LGBT community should be. Uh, it's so stirring and persuasive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. tragic because he has to hedge a little bit. Right, you know, he's right. talking about it in, in an intellectual sense, but he's mm-hmm. making a profound case for a certain kind of love, which uh, is still to this day frowned upon. We we yeah. still to this day have a very serious issue with uh, a lot of a lot of people will frown at you. You're dating, you're 35, you're dating a 25 year old. People, it's, 
Yeah. We're, we're not, we're not in a, in a, that much of a different time. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna move now to, well, he was sentenced to two years hard labor in Reading jail. Um, he was first in Newgate prison in London for processing. And when we talk about hard labor, we're talking about they would put them on these, these mills and they would have to stand or, you know, and walk these like almost like water wheels for hours mm. and hours and hours a day. I want you to imagine for a moment what that must have been like to go from the heights of, <laughs> of London right. society into a room uh, you know, I don't know exactly the exact space, but they still have it now. It's they have the room set aside now as as an, an artifact. Um, hmm. This narrow room, you know, with a cot. Um, and thank goodness that you know he had the kind of mind that he did because he did spiritually somehow survive, mm-hmm. and that is reflected in De Profundis which I would encourage you to listen to in its, in, in its entirety. They went to read it at the jail. The jail, the jail is no longer operating. Um, it's a historical site now. Um, but he wrote a 50,000 word letter, <laughs> 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 which is what is that's like, it's easily a novel. Oh yeah. 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 It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a novella edging towards 200 pages. Yeah. 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 It's more than a novella. That's a novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Between January and March in three months, Mm-hmm. Of 1897, it is some of the most gorgeous writing you'll hmm. encounter. Uh, the reading that I found, I'll put the links in the show notes at artofdarkpod.com. And uh, it, it's really worth listening to. It's six and a half hours of one man reading um, uh, reading the, the entire letter. And this actor, um, I'm going to look it up right now because I, I want to honor uh, what he did. This actor... De, de profundis one moment uh i think you were saying it was neil bartlett I neil bartlett yes and you might recognize him he shows up he he breaks down reading it really a yeah. number of times and and mm. with no artifice mm-hmm. it simply moves you to tears to think about the the mm. tragedy of this right um, him writing it in this small room after a day of you know just uh, mindless arbitrary labor for labor's sake and mm. a man who who's life philosophy was aesthetics was aestheticism and who had reached in a kind of an apotheosis in that regard as well mm. right it's yeah. it's tremendous and if it's really worth reading we're all uh we're all in a in a prison one way or another mm-hmm. and uh, uh some more literally than others but it yeah. it is a journey and he really has some spiritual moments in there there's a lot he talks about pain he talks about the beauty of loss mm-hmm. and how that might have been the lesson he was sent to teach Bosey mm-hmm. something um yeah, yeah it's really wonderful he forgives no, him I, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you sharing that with me because that is that sounds i'm going to check that out mm. post haste yeah yeah really wonderful mm. um so he he's released from prison um and he sailed that evening to france and mm. never and would never return to the united kingdom hmm. uh, now in mm-hmm, i thought on. he died in prison so he no? okay okay so he was he served his full two years got out Correct. Well, and, and very, very, he had some very famously, um, some last words and we'll come to it. So he, he's exiled. He, he's going to write his final work, which is the ballot, ballot of Reading Jail. Um, and that, that's also read online. 
you can find that. That's worth hearing read. It is about a seeing a, um, a hanging in the yard at Reading, Reading Jail. And there's some lovely, it's, it, it's wonderful. There's, it, it's of a, of a kind that, of kind of poetry we don't do anymore, right? It's this lyric poem. But once you get into the rhythm of it and all the rest, it's really wonderful. There's a, there's a line from it that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, read at some point here. Um, th- that's just beautiful. And he talks about the man dancing at the gallows. Yeah, here it is. Uh, Yet each man kills the thing he loves. By each let this be heard. Some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with the sword. Wonderful. Um, really worth listening to. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it, I, I probably didn't. You know, there's something story. beautiful about that. Mm-hmm. And the uh, true friend will stab you in the front. You can <laughs> see the, the, the wit, the wit and the cleverness and brevity of that as compared to this, what you just read. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's something in there about the, the development of the, this mind, basically. The final act here really is that um, Wilde, if I'm to understand it, um, did reconcile with his wife. He was allowed to see his children, mm. uh, which is rather moving to think of her grace and, and, mm-hmm. and poise through this, how difficult that must have been to have, to have that name so destroyed. Um, and by association, um, and he, he would reconcile with, um, Bozy. Um, he, he requested a six month Catholic retreat, um, which was denied and he wept and he, Mm. um, he said he did, he did intend to be received into the church before long. Um, he ended up in a, so we'll, we'll finish here. We're, we're closing. Uh, Douglas had been the cause of his misfortunes, right? Bosey. He and Wilde were reunite, uh, reunited in August of 97 at Rouen. Um, mm-hmm. The friends and families were not happy with this. Yeah. Um, Constance was sending him money, was sending Oscar money, his wife. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then during the latter part of 1897, Wilde and Douglas lived together near Naples for a month uh, and until their friends and family threatened to cut off the funds. Hmm. Um, wow. So there was some love there and they even reconciled. Absolutely, yeah. They I even mean, reconciled, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, his, his final address was a dingy hotel, uh, Hotel d'Alsace, now known as The Hotel, um, in the Rue de Beaux-Arts, uh, I don't know, my French is terrible, um, in Paris. And he, you know, he said, this poverty uh, really breaks one's heart. It is so filthy, so utterly depressing, so hopeless. Pray do what you can, he wrote to his publisher. So he was really, really wrecked. Yeah. Um, so he had uh, little money. The little money he had, he spent on alcohol. It really, it really broke him. Yeah. Um, and he very famously uh, said... Uh, about this room, uh, my wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One of us has to go. <laughs> <laughs> I'd heard that line before, but I'd never had that context. Yeah, this. yeah. Well, so now we're into November of 1900, so it must be chilly in Paris. Uh, he yeah. developed meningitis, um, mm. cerebral meningitis, and uh, he was conditionally baptized uh, into the Catholic Church. Hmm. Um, by a priest from Dublin. Um, 
and yeah, he, uh, he was baptized. He died on the 30th uh, of November, 1900. Um, and he was buried in a cemetery in Paris. They were disinterred and moved to a different cemetery inside the city. And initially he was, he was buried outside Paris. Um, his tomb is this wonderful kind of art deco uh, sort of, it's like a, almost like a, kind of a sphinx character. Oh, cool. Yeah. And people famously to this day cover it in lipstick kisses. They nice. kiss it. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah in 2011, uh, the tomb was cleaned of the many lipstick marks left there by admirers and a glass barrier was installed to prevent further mm -hmm. marks of damage. Mm -hmm. And the epitaph comes from uh, the Ballad of Reading Jail and alien tears will fill for him pity's long broken urn for his mourners will be outcast men and outcasts always mourn. Hmm. Wow. All right. Wow. And he, and Oscar Wilde lives on his yeah. plays are performed. Movies are made. He was, he was pardoned in 2017 along with 50,000 men who were oh, pardoned really? for okay. homosexual sexual acts. Yeah. Some people say a pardon is not enough. His family should be given a lot of money. <laughs> the estate should be restored. I don't know all the details. Um, he was given a stained glass window uh, at Poets Corner in Westminster Abbey, which is one of the highest honors that a writer could achieve sure. um, in the, the UK. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, there may or there used to be a, a coffee house here in the Twin Cities called The Wild Roast. It may still be open. I think okay. it may have changed their name. Yeah. But uh, you can't escape him. Uh, there's mm. a sculpture in Dublin. Um, He's, he's well-loved and rightly so. And uh, Brad, what do you think Oscar Wilde would be doing today if he was around <laughs> kicking? Well, he'd be, he'd be writing, he'd probably be writing television, I have a feeling. <laughs> right? Uh, and, yeah. not, and I don't say that in a diminutive way. Like, um, God, he could have written a sitcom. Could you imagine given full reins of like a sitcom situation? He would have, he would have killed it. Um, and Twitter. He'd be writing sitcoms and Twitter, and sometime in his life, he would write, like, a great, great novel. Mm. I think. That seems to me. But he would be, he would be attracting scandal. You know, he wouldn't get arrested uh, for, for, or, or convicted of, of anything and sent off to the prison camp, so we would get to enjoy his insanity. Um, not insanity. That's not fair. His uh, why don't you, I'm not even sure. His, I want his to say individualism. His, flair, his individual, we, yeah. We live at a time where that individualism is somehow conformist. The individualism yeah. is boxed inside Instagram and commodified, right. or it's in the right. context of this greater collective identity. Right. This, right. This, this guy bucked trends. He did it his mm -hmm. own way. Mm -hmm. He set the model for the rock star. Yeah. He created he really the idea of a literary rock star, a playwright. Right. Yeah. And I, I think I, I fear now that we would we would basically be like, oh, and here's this gay writer. And that's how his legacy is often yeah. presented. What a tragic yeah. figure. He was uh, he was accused of, of somnomy and tried right. and unjustly sent to prison right. and big right. bad patriarchy, da da da. Right. It's it's way more nuanced and complicated yes. than that. And tragic. Yeah. He he brought about his own downfall in right. Way. right, right, right. And right. and that's what makes it more bitter. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't think uh, I don't think a guy of that brilliance could be kept down for long. You know, I think he would poke his way through um, whatever gatekeeping was going on 
and you you would know his name if you were alive now. I have a feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's wind down here and uh, give our handles. So I'm Kevin Couchman. It's K A U T Z M A N. I'm very active on Twitter. Brad, you are too at B R A D K E L L Y. Brad Kelly. This is the Art of Darkness podcast, and and we hope you like it. This is only the second episode. The format is uh, one of us is going to do a deep dive into an author, is going to read books and uh, look up media about that author. Yeah, we'll probably not not other artists. artists. Yeah, Yeah. artists. I just said author reflectively, but we focused on two artists to begin, and we're going to kind of almost give a little class to the other one about what's Mm -hmm. going on with that person. And hopefully through the course of it, you learn something. Uh, We also have a Twitter account, Art of Dark Pod. And then of course, we're at uh, artofdarkpod.com. I want to give Oscar the last word. Yes. I feel like I feel like I've I've kind of hung out with him for a little bit. (laughs) You know, it's kind of it's kind of wonderful. It makes me want to write some poems and Maybe I, I have some flashy clothes. I'm getting ready to go out to LA. I got. I might dress up a little yeah, bit and kind of let it should. let it rip. You know, we. Yeah. You know, I think we're. I think we, everything is so sort of boring these days. I think we need to go. So I'm going to do three three of these. Men know life too early. Women know life too late. That is the difference between men and women. Uh, he who stands most remote from his age is he who mirrors it best. Ooh, I like that one. And yeah, let me find that's one. interesting. I think that's quite good. I mean, and that, that of course plays into his mirror metaphor, which he loved. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, this is lovely. Okay. Two more. Cause I really like this one. Um, Everything in the world is about sex, except sex. Sex is about power. (laughs) I've I've always loved that. I love that. It's so true. Uh, (laughs) And this one's quite good. Um, you don't love someone for their looks or their clothes or for their fancy car, but because they sing a song only you can hear. Hmm. Yeah. See, we had such sweetness to him as well. He he was a he was a teddy bear. I don't mm-hmm. think he was a bad guy. He certainly did not deserve what happened to yeah. him. Yeah. And um, the mm. next time you you watch uh, Mike Tyson's Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never see it the same way again. Yeah, yeah, no. I've, I've got real problems with the ghost of the Marquis de Queensberry. So, <laughs> all right, Brad. Um, what do you? What do you? What are we thinking of doing next? What's up next? Um, I think um, the person I am thinking about most right now is Anna Kavan, who is a. Um, uh, she's, I guess, an, an English writer, though born in France. Um, born around, born around the time that that Oscar Wilde um, passed away, actually. So, um, an incredible writer, and we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about her. But she's she's just starting to get her due, though she's been passed away fifty or sixty years now. So. And we only do dead artists and, and writers and poets and all the rest. You don't have to worry. We're not going to go after anybody living. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds wonderful, Brad. Well, yeah. I'm going to look forward to that. And our, yeah. uh, our listeners can, uh, can look forward to that too on uh, Art of Darkness. All right. 